This is The Lydia Project, Conversations with Christian Women. Our name is inspired by the life-changing conversation that Lydia had with Paul, recorded in Acts 16. On this podcast, you'll hear from a variety of women whose lives have also been impacted by the truth of the gospel. Your hosts, Tori Walker and Taryn Hayes, hope that you too will be challenged and inspired by how the gospel truths are being worked out in the lives of their guests, ordinary women who serve an extraordinary God. Today, your host is Taryn Hayes. Welcome again to The Lydia Project. I'm Taryn Hayes. My guest for this episode goes by the name Dutchie, which is a nickname she picked up years ago and by which most people know her. Like most of our guests, Dutchie's story of God's grace in her life is riveting. Unlike any other guests we've had before, her story has been split over into two episodes, of which this one is the first. The second episode will air towards the end of this month. Dutchie would say that she rambled, but I think that you'll find her engaging. And you'll find yourself constantly being brought back to God's incredible gift of Jesus and his powerful work in our lives. In this episode, part one of our chat, Dutchie shares about a deeply traumatic childhood. If this is a subject that you may be particularly sensitive to, or if there are little listening ears nearby, I would suggest maybe pausing the chat now or proceeding with measures that best support your situation. Perhaps that means using a headset or finding a more private place to listen. In part two, which will follow this episode in two weeks, Dutchie talks about how God answered her repeated prayer for patience by allowing her to suffer a stroke at the age of 29. Dutchie speaks with a refreshing candidness about the incredible struggle her road to recovery was, alongside how very good God is and the lessons he taught her through this time. Here is part one with Dutchie. Thank you for coming. That's all good. I'm really excited to do this too. Yeah. So you were recently sharing your story at our church's Stories from the Couch. Yeah. And I was reminded of God's incredible grace in your life and and yet a lot of the difficulties that you've had, many difficulties that you've had in your life. And um, yeah, I've had the privilege of getting to know you, I think, over the past, it's been almost five years, I reckon. It's coming up for about, about that, years. yeah. And I have seen you cling to Christ through extraordinary circumstances. But obviously it hasn't, you know, life didn't begin for you five years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so our first question generally is, how did you come to faith? But we also like to ask, and how has God sustained you or how has he grown you through your life circumstances? And I think your story fits into both those questions. So go for it. I guess where to start is I was born into a Christian family. I had uh, a mom, a dad, a couple of siblings when I was born, and then one that surprised us all many years later. And I grew up, grew up in the church and going to church, knowing who God was and what he'd done for me. I don't think that I didn't believe in God or didn't trust in him when I was younger, Um, But I certainly strayed away from him as I sort of left school, left home, wasn't um, as involved with church, not immediately, but when I moved overseas at 19, I just sort of didn't intentionally not go to church, but I didn't actively go to church either. I think at that time I felt quite torn because I didn't really see where God fit and why I should make him a priority. Um, And in Germany, I think it's an interesting place because many people would say they're either Catholic or Protestant, and it's really what they're born into, a lot of them, not all of them, rather than a faith and a heart thing Yeah, so I think in my time in Germany, I felt like I was just living life. I didn't feel like I was particularly pushing God out, um, but I certainly wasn't living a lifestyle that uh, was necessarily with him at the centre at all. Um, And then when I came back to Australia about a year and a bit later... I moved back to um, Canberra, which was where my family were, uh, because I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. So I moved back to Canberra, and I was on the family's property at the time, which meant that I just went along to church and was back in that 
And there were a number of moments then over the coming years, I think, that made me go, okay, well, is this just a charade? Am I, you know, going along just to meet people? Am I going along to please my family? Am I going along because it's something to do on a Sunday? Um, And if I am, then why am I just not going? Um, So I think I started to really question whether I believed what I'd grown up learning and whether I understood it, and I certainly didn't. Um, And I still, you know, am not a scholar at all. But but I, you know, I joined a Bible study. I did um, a one-on-one catch-up with the um, women's ministry worker at the church where I was going, and very quickly it became evident to her that I also didn't know what I thought and what I believed and um, and where I sat with God. And so over the course of then years after that, I started to go through the Bible with her and with other people and um, struggled with a lot of um, lifestyle choices that I was making that didn't sit right with me with my um, want to follow Christ and to do things that honored him Um, but that's not an easy road when you have just been doing things that you don't really see as a big issue and not all of those things were bad things but uh, some of them were and (laughs) so I think um, yeah it was quite a difficult thing which I was I guess surprised by because I had grown up living in church and doing things you know like I wasn't going around taking drugs and that sort of thing or like going and just punching people in the face (laughs) but but I also wasn't um sitting down regularly in the bible I wasn't praying regularly on my own I wasn't um really not that you have to know everything in the bible but I really didn't know my bible I knew Bible verses and memory verses from kids' church, you know, and I didn't really have a grasp of how it all fit together. Um, So, yeah, I think that's the slightly shortened but slightly long version of it. (laughs) Um, Yeah, and then I think not too long after I'd started doing this, I then sort of hit a couple of really big um, speed bumps in my life that I think really looking back have solidified my faith because of the hardship that then came and the people, um, you know, through God's grace that he put in my life prior to that time and since then to encourage me and just to always keep pointing me back to Christ Mm -hmm. so so those speed bumps (laughs) what happened yeah so I um, am a nurse and I was finished or nearly finished uni Uh, I was in my final year and I knew that I wasn't well mentally but I didn't uh, I didn't know what being unwell mentally really looked like Um, and I didn't feel that I should feel unwell or be unwell Um, I was very judgmental of myself and others to be honest with mental health and just had a kind of get over it attitude And so I had for many years swept it under the rug and and just tried to go, oh, well, that's not an issue and it's not a big deal. And then in my final year of nursing, um, I I really started to struggle. I was hardly sleeping. Um, I had, you know, suicidal thoughts regularly. Um, I had very poor uh, financial management and I 
instead of addressing that, spent more money, got more loans, got more stressed out by that, but it was a way, it was something that I felt I could control. So I finally went and started to get help, but didn't really, wasn't very honest with the professionals that that I was speaking to about what was really going on because I wanted to suss them out. (laughs) Um, And then it wasn't until the following year in my first year of nursing that I was then doing shift work. I was uh, living alone, which I had been on and off for quite some time, uh, that I really started to go downhill to the point where I was forcibly taken into hospital Um, by police uh, after I had sent a farewell message basically to um, to a very close friend of mine who was conveniently not in the city where I was living Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) I thought that would you know get me out of it I guess Um, I didn't call anyone to come and be with me or to help me I I messaged intentionally someone that I thought wouldn't be able to do anything about it Um, yeah, and then I was in hospital for, I don't know, probably, probably about six weeks, I think, on the first admission. Um, I didn't tell many people I was in there. I didn't open up to the professionals, um, but I eventually played a good enough game that they kind of had to let me go because I was safe by all standards that they had Um, and I played the charade for a few weeks because I knew I had to have follow-ups and stuff and then was again uh, forcibly taken in about six weeks later Um, and that's I guess where things started to unravel for me uh, as though you know being in that situation is not unraveling but I sort of hadn't seen it as that at the time I was just so flat um so in that second admission I just anything I say here sounds a bit bizarre but like I had a meltdown inside of a meltdown inside of a meltdown (laughs) um being in a mental health unit but I just had a a moment one day where I felt I can't die because then my little brother will have no one to grow up with he's a lot younger than me so you know like he used to come and stay at my house and I, I don't know I I was sitting there and planning how to end my life and that was the thought that came into my head not God, unfortunately, it wasn't other people. It wasn't, um, I've got something worth, of worth in me. Um, But he was the thing that just made me snap in my brain and I went, okay, I've got to address this. Mm. And from there, I, you know, I was in there for, I think it was about 10 weeks, the second admission. And from there, I let people know that I was in there not a great deal um, because I was extremely ashamed and embarrassed and all of those things but I let a couple of people from church know and asked them to not um, tell anyone <clears throat> and um, they thankfully they were very respectful of that and you know came and, and visited me and things like that I also then started to get the help that I needed because I was then opening up about what was really going on um, with the, you know, with the professionals, with the psychologist and the psychiatrist and the counsellors and the nurses and, you know, <laughs> anyone. So, um, yeah, so I think that was a very difficult dark, um, hopeless place to find myself. Um, And I don't know, um, you know, as far as having other moments of change, I can't remember other than that moment of thinking of my little brother 
and wanting to be around for him. But what I do remember, particularly looking back, because at the time I was still very, very unwell for for quite some time and I had to go on medications and all of those sorts of things and do a lot of therapy. One of the things that really stands out to me is the way that the people in my life who were my Christian brothers and sisters were not only supporting me in my faith and praying with me and sitting and like talking me through how you know God's not going to disown you now because of the, you know because that's how I felt at the time um, but also that they did so many things that were so practically helpful as well and I really appreciated seeing God through other people at that time because and that's happened many times in my life but seeing those people who had started to become a part of my life that I can very clearly see how God's put them in my path along the years um to know them well to have already trusted them well to let them in had you know this all happened two or three years prior I think the outcome would be very different um, because I didn't have those same relationships with those people and I didn't really have people at that time that I did have a very solid um, relationship with that I would have gone to or been comfortable to mm. open up with. So, mm. When you're saying mental health, what are the things that precipitated all of that? Yeah, so I... I had had several uh, incidents in the last couple of years prior to ending up in hospital um, that had triggered quite a lot from my childhood. Um, These were events um, that were um, my actions at the time, um, you know, with men, but I was very very uh, triggered because of what had happened to me as a kid Um, so I was um, from a very very young age abused um, by someone who I can't say Um, but I was abused from a very young age um, sexually um, until my mid-teens. I don't, I don't think I knew that it was um, a big deal at the time uh, until I was much older um, and by that stage it was such a uh, common or normal thing for me uh, that it was very hard to I guess change that situation that I was in um so I you know I continued to be sexually abused up until the age of about 13 um many times over those you know nearly 10 years and I didn't tell anyone at the time or for many 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 years afterwards um I was very clearly told that I would not tell anyone or bad things would happen Uh, I was told that if I did I wouldn't be believed anyway um I was um regularly um made out to be a liar by that person um in front of other people um and of course as a kid you just go well who's going to believe a kid over an adult um so as I got older um the abuse had stopped 
Um, and I, you know, didn't really have any interesting guys. In fact, I was quite terrified of them. Um, I, like every teenager, thought that, you know, this guy at school was really cool looking or something, but I was not, you know, willing to kind of almost even entertain the thought that I could ever be in a relationship or that I could, you know, not just at that time, but even as an adult, I, I very much struggled with the thought that anyone would love someone because what I had seen of someone that I thought loved me was later what I knew to be very much not what love looks like. Um, and then quite a number of years later I was also abused um, when I was travelling overseas and yet I went overseas a number of years after that and um, I, I put myself in a probably a risky, silly situation um, and I was travelling by myself and went out, had a drink spiked and was um, was abused, um, sexually abused in in um, Paris when I was travelling there by myself as well. Whilst I was living in Germany, I'd travelled to uh, to Paris to do a bit of a sightseeing tour. Uh, I got mugged, got abused, and um, you know, so that had. I thought I'd put these things to the back of my mind and then something else would happen and then I'd put it to the back of my mind because no one's going to believe me and then something else happened and again you know not that I would ever in my life blame a victim but I was almost actively putting myself in risky situations at times and risk taking to just see what would happen um you know I think part of me thought I hoped that someone would find me attractive and sort of take me out or something. Um, but <laughs> instead it just ended up in really unfortunate circumstances. So when I when I ended up um, going into hospital uh, and being taken into hospital, that's all that I would tell them, was that I got raped in Paris and... You know, it was traumatic, which it absolutely was. Um, and I was very scared for my life um, on this cold streets of Paris in the middle of October. And my, you know, camera had been stolen. Thankfully, my wallet hadn't. But, it, you know, like that was what I focused on. And that's what I would tell the psychologist and the psychiatrist about. And I just hoped that the things that they would tell me about and the way that we would deal with it then I could manage the rest and I could then process all of the childhood trauma (laughs) that didn't happen (laughs) no surprises that didn't happen at all I grew more um, unwell but I also became um, much more, not fearful, but I became a much more anxious person. I had a lot more flashbacks because it, it, it was just opening this can of worms that had been waiting for years to spew out of me. Um, and, you know, I'm again now thankful that that then later got disclosed but at the time I didn't think anyone would believe me and so I I knew because I'd told the family that I was living with in Germany that I that what had happened in Paris and I called them later that night and like told them and they're like we're coming to get you like you know so I knew they believed me and I was like no no I'll come home tomorrow I'll catch the train back 
So I had no fear that someone would believe that. Growing up as a child and being told that no one will believe you if you tell them that's what you believe because you're little and you are innocent and it is horrific that people do this. But you do believe it and you do let it happen because you don't think it's something that you're letting happen. You think it's a nice thing or you think that it's a normal thing. Um, you know, to have someone when you are four years old or five years old or ten years old um, sexually um, touching you or, you know, being intimate with you is never appropriate that's that should not ever happen let alone an adult and so that completely skews your view of what intimacy is which is something I still um I guess not struggle with but know that it skews my view um I know that there are a lot of things that would be very difficult for me if I did enter a relationship you know um, I am currently single and I have no you know no one in mind or whatever but I know that there will be baggage you know with with anything sexual in my future and I think that's a really sad thing and I know that it's such a reality for so many women not only from abuse but from poor choices which I've made as well you know like I sought out partners and stuff when I was younger to try and create um happy memories or like what I thought was healthy um, relationships or memories in my brain to replace the messiness that I couldn't make any sense of. Um, and I know that I'm not unique in that, which makes me really sad. Um, it makes me sad that there would be many women that would be in the position I was, you know, six or eight years ago, or ten years ago, however long I was, there would be women in the position that I was years ago thinking no one will believe me, I can't tell anybody. Some of these women have married and have children and their partners don't know what a struggle that is for them. Um, there are many women that are single, not purely because of that, but largely because of that abuse that they've faced. And, you know, that that's really sad to me. And I think I, I'm still sad that it happened to me. I don't think I get teary. Um, and I get, I get frustrated that, um, that it continues to happen so much and not just in secular circles like it happens in churches it happens in clubs it happens in you know all sorts of places workplaces wherever um, you know because we live in a broken world um but I think the the thing that makes me most sad about any of it is that so often the victims feel that they are at fault and feel that they are worthless because of it. And that's just simply not true. <laughs> and I and I know that I have been told that many times and it took you know, ten times that to make it feel slightly the case because, again, I had grown up being told otherwise um, 
and then I continued to grow up once it did stop I then was treated very differently and very poorly at times and um, I guess abused in other ways in the sense that I was very poorly spoken of around other people and I was told that I was worthless and I was told that I was terrible and that I was useless and all of those things and the more you hear that the more you believe it if someone's constantly boosting your confidence you see those kids at soccer who (laughs) you know who their parents are just they cannot do any wrong and they might be horrendous at playing but geez they've got confidence walking (laughs) on that pitch but it's the same on the flip side right you know if if someone is constantly told that they are a liar that they are useless that they are worthless that they are not you know anything then you do start to believe that um so i yeah i i don't know that there will ever be a time that i will be able to say honestly that's that is just a blip on my you know life map or whatever because it was a very significant part of my life it was a um, formative part of my life and you know from a medical point of view that changes your wiring and your learning different things at that time so you know I am skewed and that's okay but that's the reality is that I don't have a reference point for some things um, of what is you know what I guess most people would call normal or or whatever Um, but I can I can also say though I, I can say though that um it's not a part of my life now and it's not a part of where I um see my future. I have no um no real day to day or even monthly or whatever. Like I have no real significant impact that this plays on my life anymore. It used to. Um, you know, I used to have nightmares up until the age of 20-something. I used to have flashbacks anytime I saw something on the TV that would be... And it wouldn't always be something that was like a graphic sexual thing. It was sometimes just a phrase that a man spoke to a small child and I froze and I would have a panic attack and that can be really awkward when you're just watching a Kleenex ad at your friend's place and all of a sudden you're like I gotta go (laughs) you know um so you know I think for, for the vast majority of my life now it doesn't impact me and I'm so thankful for that um but I am also, you know, sad and um, anxious to a point about what it looks like for my future if I were to find a partner or anything like that. Um, but also, you know, if that were to happen, if I ever had kids and if I had a daughter, you know, like that, I think that terrifies me more, which is not even on the cards right now. And yet I really fear um, for for that sort of unknown, I guess, um, because I, I know how prevalent it is and I know how easily it happens and from the you know most unlikely people or whatever so I think that is always if ever I sort of do start thinking about a future that might look like having a family or something 
I think it's a shame, but but the reality is that's that's one of my fears and my like hesitations, I guess. Not that you know, I don't even know if I can have kids, and yet I I worry about having kids for for what could happen to them. <laughs> it's definitely impacted me a lot, and it's definitely. It's definitely shaped a lot of my poor choices. It's definitely shaped a lot of... I I will never excuse poor actions that I made on crappy circumstances growing up. But I can also from... I can also appreciate that probably if that hadn't been the case, I may not have made some of the choices in my life that I would have. You know, some that have caused me pain some that have not you know I'm very thankful that I haven't I guess gotten myself into more strife than I have because again um, it's a very common thing uh, for people who've come out of abuse to have quite risk-taking behavior to push the envelope to try and seek control of a situation when you feel that you don't have any and I did certainly do that you know not with anything probably super crazy but I for a time was quite heavily drinking not regularly but when I did drink it would be a lot and I knew that going into it and that was my plan going into it that night or whatever was see how much I can drink and just like see how numb I can get and just push it all aside and you know unhealthy coping absolutely but I felt like I was in control of it so you know thankfully that's not the case anymore I'm a nana and I drink tea and I'm in bed by (laughs) you know not that late but it it definitely has shaped a lot of things in how I react to stuff, in how I've acted at times, in my emotional response to things, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Like, actually, there probably will be people listening to this going, I thought it was just me, and... I hope they take encouragement from your story that it's not just them and that there's hope in Christ. Yeah, I hope so. Like, that's the single most important thing to me is if if opening up about my own stuff, now that I'm in the place where I feel comfortable doing that, if someone finds something helpful in that, then I will shout it from the rooftops because... You know, I've had people that have done the same for me and got me through things by opening up. So if it is helpful, then awesome. Yeah. So, of course, it's been all roses since then, right? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. I mean, look, the mental health is something that uh, is ongoing and is always a thing that I personally think uh, we should all talk to people whether that's professionals or close friends or whatever and you know I've had some difficult times since then but praise God I haven't been in that same low spot again I still often struggle with sleep and that's something that I have to watch closely but the thing that has been constant and has been, if you call it rosy, but <laughs> the thing that has been constant since then has been that I, putting Christian people around myself, not as a one-way thing just to protect me, but to to really actively create deep relationships with people. I've been in Brisbane now, yeah, about five nearly five years and the first priorities when I got here was to find a good church and to start making connections because of the work that I do I didn't know if I would be here two years or five years or whatever so I 
you know, I don't want to wait and see. I want to get in, get involved, get to know people, be a part of the community, obviously, because that's a good thing to do. And I love being involved in community, particularly in church community. But it's also, I think, as a Christian, such a good safety mechanism. Mm-hmm. It's it's not just because of my mental health. <laughs> it's as a Christian that we should have people around us to challenge us and to encourage us and to pray with us and to hear us out when we have stupid ideas or hear us out when we have great ideas or any of those things. So I think that's been something that no matter where I go, I will always have at the top of my priority list because I can see how God uses those relationships for him either in our own lives or in others. Like I've had relationships that I've seen kids grow that I've been a leader for on camps and then seeing what they're doing later and you never think that something you you say is going to well I don't think that anything I say is going to really impact anyone I always sort of think oh that you know wise older person or Mm -hmm. someone when I grew up that's who you know made me really think about that thing but having had a couple of kids from camps that I, I used to lead on come up to me at subsequent camps when they're leaders and go, oh, when you were leading me and blah, 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 like this really made me think or it really challenged me to step up or whatever. And I think that's so cool, the ways that you... And 99% of that, I guarantee the other person will never know how they've changed you and you'll mm. never know how you've changed someone else but it can never be there if you don't create that, Mm. you know, if you don't get involved and if you don't become part of the community and God's family to be able to do that. So what I'm hearing from you is something I hear from people who are in transient jobs or situations that to sit around waiting for life to happen and for relationships to happen Mm. Is we just you just don't have time if you're in a transient position, and so I've often heard that from people like that. So I'm interested to hear your views on that, and that was my experience as well. Actually, coming here, it was it gets stuck in. Otherwise, it will you can't wait around for people to come and come into your life. You've got to kind of get going and get get involved in theirs and get in, yeah just get involved in church. And that's certainly been my experience of you because I think I. I met you within the first day of being at Michi. Yeah, it was the first day that we were at Michi. I met you. I think when you were visiting. That's even. right. Yeah, that's it. That's exactly right. And yeah, I've I've been, I've been witness to the fruit of what God has enabled you to do in terms of connecting with people. And so mm. it's awesome looking at this four and a half years for me down the track and seeing the impact that uh, you've had on other people's lives. For the sake of the gospel, it's been very encouraging. Very, very encouraging. So I second what you say. I think that's great advice for Christians is to just get stuck in. And, yeah, and to maybe, um, yeah, not not worry about what you're going to receive from it, but get stuck in for what you can do. Because, you know, as you said, you guarantee that those people that have felt so served by you, you have been blessed by just by being in, in relationship with them so yeah. those come quite naturally just by getting stuck in to serve yeah and I think I am someone who I'm an eater so I <laughs> I will regularly invite people for meals and I enjoy cooking and I enjoy baking and that sort of thing so I really enjoy doing that sort of stuff I think what people don't realize is that's really uncomfortable for me as well. But I see such value in it, both from when people have done that for me, but also when I've had people and the way that you get to know people over a meal and, you know, sitting around playing board games or whatever it is, 
if it's you know bible study and sitting down and getting into god's word but just getting to know people over a meal as well i do it regularly but i regularly feel very uncomfortable doing it and that's okay um, because 99% of the time afterwards i'm so glad that i've done it and i've met these different people and i get to hear other people's stories and learn you know from their lives and hear wisdom of whoever it is that that's come over and i think that's such a special thing that i guess doesn't happen much in our society anymore so it is also quite a special and unique thing that your church family has you know more than just a club Mm. Um, I know that you know I've been I've played sports and I've done other things and you know we might go out for drinks or out for dinner but you don't have deep conversation at a bar or at a restaurant or at bowling (laughs) you're you're talking about the footy you're talking about random stuff politics whatever but it's it's not deep conversation generally and it's not usually getting to know people on a deeper level which I think is something special about being in someone else's home or having them in your home Mm -hmm. that I really value and I guess that was something that was modeled to me by my mum particularly growing up was you know caring for people cooking for people having meals and doing that sort of thing so Mm -hmm. apple doesn't fall far from the tree (laughs) (laughs) and that's great and also, what you haven't said, which I think Warren's saying, is that it doesn't have to be um, somebody who is in a, a you know, mum with children. I think we often think that the person who's going to be doing the inviting is somebody who's been running mm. a home for years or is established family. That you as a young woman in your 20s, single young woman in your 20s, inviting in our case, you invited us over with our children to your place. I appreciate that it sounds like I'm still in my 20s. This is great. <laughs> well, you're just just outside of your 20s. <laughs> but the point being that four and a half years ago, you were in your 20s, you invited us over. And that you said that you also feel uncomfortable about that. I'm so glad you said that because people will hear the story and think, well, that's not in me or it's not my comfort zone or it's not my um, area of expertise or whatever. And yet you've said, well, I enjoy doing this, but I also find it uncomfortable. But you do it for the benefit of it, for the community, for the connecting with other Christians and deepening that family, that church family. Yeah, and I think I, I actively go out of my way, like not to pump myself up, but I actively go out of my way to do some things at church that make me feel uncomfortable because I know what it feels like being on the other side. I've moved a lot of times in my life. So I've been the new guy many, many times and being new and having no one talk to you is horrible. Mm. It sucks. And it happens. It happens that churches of every size it's not big mega churches it's not tiny little 12 person churches it is literally every church because I've been to both ends of the spectrum living in different places and traveling around I like to go to church um, in different countries when I travel and I've had a 12 person church where no one came and spoke to me 12 people and then I had a I think it was uh, when I was in Nashville, Tennessee, <laughs> I was at like a, an 8,000-person church. Uh, that's what, what their morning service was. I think the evening service that I went to had like only 3,500 or something. <laughs> so tiny. Um, and I, I had like the doorman people because they had like tons of them. I reckon they had 30 people on the doors, mm. uh, which blew my mind. But they spoke to me. No one in the congregation spoke to me before or afterwards. So I think what I'm saying in that is it's not a unique thing, Mm -hmm. but also there's two people in that equation. I didn't go and speak to people, but at the 12-person church, I was like, oh, this seems like a big family. I'm just going (laughs) to scooch out. Um, But 
I could have also gone up and sort of initiated something as well. But that's tough if you're always the one moving or mm. if you're the new one and you sort of don't know mm. what's what and who's who. So I feel very uncomfortable speaking to new people. But I do it because I know how important that is. And having had people come up to me afterwards and go, you know, you spoke to me on my first day here. And, like, I feel comfortable now to speak to other people and that's funny because they are people who said that like they would never do that either and so if that's the small sacrifice then sure you know you you will very rarely if ever see me reading the bible up the front because I'm dyslexic and so I'm terrified of doing (laughs) that and I see no need when there are people that do a fantastic job (laughs) of that but people is you know I'm passionate about people. I'm a nurse, so that's a good thing. But I I think that's so important because if you don't have people, you don't have a church mm. and you can't grow God's community. Yeah. So. This is not the end of my chat with Dutchie, but it is the end of part one. Part two will be the next episode on the Lydia Project when Dutchie tells the story of her stroke at the age of 29, and all that God has taught her at that time and since then. If anything Dutchie has said has struck a chord for you, please reach out, whether it's to us or to others you trust. The trauma that Dutchie has described is sadly not uncommon, and yet many of us are living with deep wounds that are yet to be healed. As Dutchie experienced, part of her healing came through the help of others. Included in the show notes are some options of Christian psychologists in Brisbane, who may be of help to you or others, as well as some books that might be helpful too. Dutchie has much more to share in episode two, and we look forward to sharing that with you next. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of The Lydia Project. We would love you to share this episode with others, whether that be by word of mouth, social media, or leaving a review on iTunes. You can find us on most platforms using the handle at TLPCWCW. Music is Wholesome 7 by Dave Depper and voiceover is by me, Jennifer Mary. 